Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I just found the most delightful summer book, The Bull in the Darkness and the One-Eyed Dog, Scenes from the Life of a Country Veterinarian, and it really is scene after scene after scene of the most extraordinary events that Dr. Rob Sharp has had in a lifetime of being a veterinarian in Ohio. He actually did other things besides be a veterinarian, but he's done that for so very long, and his son has followed in his footsteps. Rob, it's a great book. The stories are enchanting and fascinating, and I just can't imagine that you aren't the person that everybody wants to stop on the street and just chat with. You're so open and affable and fun and funny. Have you always had trouble navigating the main street of your own town without being stopped? <laughs> uh, well, first, thanks for having me, Tracy. Um, yes, I do. Um, a trip to Kroger's to get three items can turn into a one-hour trip. I believe it. Um, but mostly, it's because I enjoy talking to them. Uh, you know, I've, I have some clients that are third-generation clients. Uh, I took care of their parents' animals, and I took care of their grandparents' animals. And so it's like meeting old friends. It's, um, it's quite different. I... It's, it's quite different from what people in, in other locations, not just urban, but even suburban, they never get to see the same vet twice. And the vet practices, as you know, get bought up by bigger corporations. And there's a lot of burnout. And it's hard. It's a would be a treat and a privilege to be able to have a lifelong multi-generational relationship 
with your veterinarian. But I th- do you think it's partly because you're you're also genuinely a country vet and a large animal vet, and a, and at least half of your stories involve very large animals. Is that part of why you you keep at it and the people around you stay where they are? Well, I I never intended to be a large animal vet. Um, I was raised in a steel town up in northeast Ohio, and when I went to to uh, vet school, it was my intention to just be a small animal vet. Um, but I did buy a practice when it came up for sale that still did forty percent large animals, and so I couldn't just stop doing that. Uh, so I I kind of was forced into learning something that I was totally unfamiliar with. When I went to vet school, that was the first time I'd ever touched a live cow. Um, and I know that sounds odd, but it's why the first group of stories about uh, essentially training a rookie yes, yes. Uh, is, is so true, um, because I, I really was a rookie at my job. Um, and I think it's, it's also, uh, you know, I live in a town where we all kind of know each other. It's a, we know the teachers in the schools and we yes. know the police officers. Uh, if an alarm goes off in my office and I go to find out if there's a problem, uh, the policeman that I meet is somebody that I know. <laughs> yeah. uh, I take, in fact, I take care of their dogs. So, In uh, fact, you take care just, of a lot of police dogs. You have some great stories about canine 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 <laughs> units as as you say correctly they're actually yeah. referred to as i mean you had some some difficult ones <laughs> well we don't think of them as units so much uh you know they're they're just patients of ours and and very intelligent patients um we play ball with them in the office sometimes because they're also ball oriented yes uh, and in fact we have a a hole in the wall where one of them grabbed a ball and grabbed part of the wall at the same time. <laughs> Just goes to show you how motivated they are. The You had a wonderful story about one one of the canines being trapped after a car wreck. And, well, yeah. And, and nobody but you could get them out. And it was it's a very touching story because it it makes so clear the, the connection you do have to animals. And I, I would say that a lot of people who go to vet school have never touched a live cow. Now, maybe not in Ohio, but many veterinarians have come out of the school you went to, which is highly regarded, the Ohio State University College of Veterinary Medicine. And they may never have touched a horse or a cow or a donkey or a goat or a sheep. It, or, or am no. I wrong? Is it mostly really, does it draw from the farmlands? Well, I think now, um, most veterinary schools are starting to allow you to specialize in school. Uh, if you know you're going to just be doing small animals, uh, then you're probably going to be allowed to concentrate your studies in those areas. Um, my son has never gelded a horse. Uh, and, and in fact, I haven't done large animals for a number of years now. Uh, we've become a small animal practice. Um, but my son is, uh, is one of those. He's he's never palpated a cow. Uh, he's never uh, never done any of the things that a routine farm vet would do. It's interesting. And, and it's also one of those things that's just changing with time. A lot of farmers are doing a lot of their own stuff. Uh, they vaccinate their own animals. Uh, and most of the time they have another job, at least here in Ohio, uh, so they work their day job, then they go home and check their herds of cattle wow. and 
they realize at eight o'clock at night they have a problem. And so most, a, a lot of farm calls come in late at night. For the farmers to survive, they need to have a day job now. Economically well, to survive. I, you know, I'm right at the edge of where the the uh, the Great Glacier stopped, and so north of us we have flat land. Uh, we have larger areas of flat farming. Down here in the hills, you can't drive a tractor up and down the hills very well planting corn. And so we have more herds of sheep and herds of beef cattle. And so those farmers uh, do pretty well. And the farmers up north um, are generally planting crops on that ground. Um, the field across from my son's place uh, is owned by a farmer who farms a thousand acres. Wow. Uh, just just he and his brother. And so they don't have time for animals. And they don't have time for a day job. They, they Their entire life is the thousand acres. It is. I guess what's yep. really marvelous about the book when you you, and I'm sure this is true whenever you're around people and you and there's a, a moment to chew the fat, is that any topic you're like, oh yeah, there's a great story in your book about that about the gelding, <laughs> the gelding of that, of that horse, and and the person came back and said, so everything's good, huh? Different rope than before, though. It's wonderful <laughs> because your stories start out. Now I'm going to tell you a story, and it might get a a little complicated, but they all have an upbeat ending. You know, you, you see the good in people and in animals always at the end of your stories. I, w I wonder if you'd be willing to read the introduction to your book. To, oh. to me, it, it captures the style of your writing in The Bull in the Darkness and The One-Eyed Dog, but also your attitude and, and the fact that there's often little hidden treats in your stories or even in your sentences. So it'd be great if you would read that. And I think it gives people a flavor of the book and, and I hope gives them an appetite to, to dig into it. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Um, well, it's, uh, it's kind of my attitude toward the book. Uh, it begins, I could teach you, how to give an animal an injection in under a minute. In just a few minutes, I could have you suturing a cut. And if ever there were an easy job, it would be trimming the toenails of the dog. This is pretty basic stuff and so simple that a kid in junior high could learn to do it. What makes it hard are the complications. I'll give you some examples. The shot you just learned to give will be in the left eyelid of a 2,000-pound Charolais bull standing in a pasture by himself. He hates everyone. <laughs> the skin you need to stitch is a three-foot cut on the chest of a buggy horse who ran into a wire fence. He's standing in an old barn during a lightning storm <laughs> at 10 o'clock at night. You have to suture by the light of a Coleman lantern since the owner's Amish. No electricity. <laughs> wow. And the toenail trim is on Cecil with St. Bernard. He doesn't like to have his toenails trimmed and has backed his 150 pounds of growling and drooling opinion into the corner of your exam room. Come and give it a try. A shot, a cut, a toenail trim. All easy, except for a few complications. I've heard there's a farm on Peach Orchard Road where everything goes as it should. No complications ever happen there. 
the farmer calls to make appointments well in advance and doesn't consider something that's been going on for two weeks to be an emergency. When you arrive, he's there to greet you and has men to help if necessary. He never expects you to manage alone or just with the help of his 12-year-old daughter. <laughs> his animals are penned up in a reasonable area. He has a head gate built to catch each steer or cow in his corral. Sick animals are in a well-lighted barn, clean, dry, and ready for treatment. He gives medicine until it's gone, and his animals always get well. His dogs and cats are well cared for, have great temperaments, and live to be very old. His horses are gentle and never lame. <laughs> when you leave, you know everything will be all right. No one was hurt. And, oh, yes, he pays his bills. <laughs> I've heard of this farm in the south of Highland County, but I've never been there. Complications occur at the places I visit. The first examples I gave are true. Maybe the farm on Peach Orchard Road is just a dream. I'll bet every veterinarian has that dream and their own farm on Beach Orchard Road. Maybe someday I'll go there, but not today, and certainly not in any stories of this book. Well, well read, and well, so well written. That's really the joy of the book, is that it, it, it sort of tilts on its ear our idea of what a veterinarian has to do and where he has to do it and what his equipment are and the conditions, not that the animal is giving birth and is up to her belly in mud and You've got, you know, just there's so many situations of where the, there was, was it the horse that needed to be gelded that went down just, just before he reached the, the county highway <laughs> and you tranquilize him? I mean, there's these visions that just stay with you. Of, hey, there's a man and a horse in the ditch and you have to wait for the horse to wake up. Meanwhile, the gelding didn't even happen yet. So it, they're just wonderful stories. And I think also one that's terrific is the one where you're at a the Southern Ohio veterinary meeting and people are eating from the buffet table and telling these <laughs> gruesome, gory doctors telling each other the grossest thing that ever they had to deal with. And I mean, is that, do you, is there part of that? Can you one-up this? Well, I was holding a uterus and it was full of manure and gravel, but... Well, you know, you, you can go to a rotary meeting, but you don't very often find other people sitting around veterinarians or doctors. That's <laughs> they, right. They have their own end of the table. Because of that, they always want to tell yep. that the hardest thing they ever had to do, and it never was the at a farm on Peach Orchard Road. <laughs> do, do you hope that this is a book that vet students, I, I'm sure other veterinarians will get a big kick out of it, especially the ones like your son who were of a generation that have no idea of what the older generation had to do or how they had to do it. But do you hope that vet students will read it and maybe some of them might be inspired to become country vets or has the world changed too much? No, I, I think so. Uh, we've had uh, a couple of students recently uh, who've uh, gone on to college and come back to our area, um, both female vets. Nice. Um, we have a girl um, who's in the office now who has just accepted to vet school. Uh, she's been working with us for a couple of years, and she probably will come back maybe as Reed's partner. How uh, exciting. Four years. Uh, so he would like some help, frankly. 
when we were a two-man practice, we were still very busy, and I, I don't work every day now. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, it's just an exciting profession. It's never dull. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's never the just, same thing twice. I no, guess it's so much fun. And I think that's and what I your think, book, may, it brings out the fun in even the most harrowing kind of physical situations. It's the adventure of it. You know, the phone rings and you don't know what you're going to see or what, what to expect. Well, I was really lucky in that the veterinarian that I bought the practice from was uh, willing to go with me on some farm calls in the beginning. So he kept me from getting lost, for one thing. Uh, but he also gave me two generations worth of tips. Uh, our practice now is 111 years old. Wow. Um, my predecessor's father started the practice. And then uh, when he died unexpectedly, uh, his son was released from the army during World War II to come home and take the practice. Uh, so when I bought the practice from him um, in 1980, uh, I became the, the third veterinarian since 1912. And then my son joined us in 2012, uh, 100 years into the practice. Isn't so that something? Two fathers and two sons have had the practice now for 111 years. So I hope that Reed is breeding profusely so that at least one of his offspring will want to be the next generation. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I guess that's going to be up to him. Yeah, I guess it will. Uh, Maybe when the lady vet comes back. I like calling her a lady vet. That feels like something out of the 1930s, given that the majority <laughs> of women coming out of vet school now are female, or the majority of doctors coming out of vet school are female. I think it's fantastic. I think it's great that you still have your your foot in the door because at a certain point, physically, large animal medicine is very demanding. And as you get older, your physicality, you know, isn't isn't what it was. I think it's great that you can still be there, and I hope that I hope the practice can go for another 111 years. I think it's a, a the, the stories you tell in the Bull in the Darkness and the One Eyed Dog are wonderful stories, but they also give a real sense of Americana and what it's like to live on a farm with animals and all the challenges that they pose, not the least of which is that person that ran over the cat how many times? I tell you, oh, there yeah. are great, great stories, Rob, and you've done a marvelous job. Thank you so much for writing this beautiful book and for sharing your time with us. Oh, thanks, Tracy. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human-edible, ethically-sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, 
where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.